0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to wade into the shark-infested territory of discussing Black Lives Matter with pro-life leader and civil rights activist Ryan Bomberger. We're going to take a look at the movement, what it stands for, and how racism can be addressed in today's society. That's coming right up. Ah! Thanks, all of you, for joining us. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Ryan Bomberger. Those of you who have been regular listeners to this podcast will recognize the name because we've had him on the podcast before to have discussions uh, surrounding abortion, uh, for example, in the African American community. He has a a phenomenal book called Not Equal, which kind of goes through his experience as as a black pro life leader, although. The Radiance Foundation, of which he is one of the, the co-founders, is has a much broader mandate than just abortion. Just to read you a little bit from his bio here, he has a unique perspective of the innate nature of purpose. His biological mother was actually sexually abused, yet courageously gave him a chance to live and the beautiful gift of adoption. He was adopted at six weeks of age and grew up in a loving, multiracial Christian family of 15. With siblings of varying ethnicities, he grew up with an appreciation for diversity, Ten of the 13 children were adopted in this remarkable family. His life defies, he says, the myth of the unwanted child as he was adopted, loved, and flourished. Today, he is an Emmy award-winning creative professional who founded the Radiance Foundation, a life-affirming 501c3, along with his wife, Bethany. He is a broadcast media designer, producer, columnist, passionate factivist, international speaker, and the author of the powerful book, Not Equal Civil Rights Gone Wrong. So with everything that's been going on, I wanted to have Ryan on to kind of discuss what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement. I wrote a column for LifeSite last week just laying out the fact that I believe The statement Black Lives Matter to be utterly uncontroversial, or at least it is for any decent and thinking person, but that the organization specifically, the organization Black Lives Matter, I had a lot of concerns with that organization, especially due to the fact that they promote a lot of the things uh, that I spend a lot of time writing and speaking out against. Um, uh, Ryan mentioned this to me after we had already taped the podcast, but he said uh, that he forgot to mention in the discussion that the... Black Lives Matter organization is run by uniformly hardcore pro-abortion people um support for abortion is considered a uh, one of the tenets of of this particular movement and again i distinguish between the movement the organization and the actual sentiment and ryan mentioned he said how can you say that that black lives matter when you are standing in solidarity with the abortion industry which as we know has spent years targeting that community in order to make a lot of money off of the misery and destruction of preborn human lives uh, in that community, so Ryan Baumberger, I was very pleased that he uh, he agreed to come on the podcast again. Um, he's one of the best pro-life speakers that you'll ever hear. Uh, His stuff is really important. You should really check it out. And he came on to have a discussion with me about what this moment means uh, for Christians, how we can kind of parse it through, whether or not we can support the organization Black Lives Matter, considering the things that it believes through a Christian lens. Some people aren't going to like this discussion, but at the end of the day, we We need to look at what's going on and we need to address injustice from a Christian perspective and adhering to Christian ethics rather than jumping on board with various bandwagons without figuring out who's actually driving those bandwagons first. So here is my discussion with Ryan Baumberger. Thanks for listening. All right, Ryan, uh, just to start off, what was your reaction when you first saw the George Floyd video? And I'll admit up front that I got to the point where he started crying for his mother and I couldn't make it further than that.
1: Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Anytime you see a life snuffed out, I mean, um, unless you're, you're not fully human, I don't know how you can't be moved. So that, that was devastating to watch that and to see the almost the indifference of the officers who just didn't even respond to the bystanders who were yeah. begging and pleading. So I don't know how anyone could watch that and not just have their, their heart just just ripped, ripped apart by that. It was it was injustice in very visible form, it really was. So,
0: so one, one of the things I wanted to, to really get into with you, because I've, I've been kind of frustrated by the response this last week, because from my perspective, and tell me tell me uh, if you disagree um, or where your perspective differs, when this happened, about 90% of Americans were on on the same team on two key things, the first of which is, George Floyd was murdered and those who murdered him should be charged. Um, they should be arrested and charged immediately. And then secondarily that looting and rioting is, is a terrible response to this. Um, not least because some of the people that um, they the protesters were claiming to stand up for, those who are going to be most affected by this looting and rioting. We now know the death count um, has risen to at least a dozen um, by the past weekend. And so I felt like there was a lot of common ground, a lot of people that were willing to consider solutions. I feel like the George Floyd case moved people in a way previous cases hadn't, just because of how horrific the video was. But then almost immediately, it it feels like the common ground has vanished and everybody's retired to their sides and is now screaming at each other, which just seems like a crying shame to me.
1: Well... We live in a nation that is and in a culture, a society that is so easily moved, um, particularly by social media. People want to immediately emotionally respond. Uh, we don't even know all the details to, to this case, first of all. We don't know if it was racism that motivated the heart of that officer, for instance. But, but it wouldn't even matter. It wouldn't matter, actually, the reason for the killing. Killing is wrong, period. Yeah. The reason doesn't make it any worse. That's not to say R- racism is sin. Racism is evil. There are many sins that lead people to do heinous acts. So in this whole common ground thing, the common ground is definitely that we, we felt that, that same sort of reaction of injustice, but what ends up happening is that it gets immediately politicized, it gets thrown into a hashtag, which then is part of a larger movement that is making a claim that I personally don't accept, that I, the evidence doesn't bear that out. So that the claim is that black men are endangered by, by police, there is an epidemic of police brutality against black men, but none of the evidence bears that out. So what we hear is systemic racism, systemic racism and we should be actually talking about specific racism because systemic racism is, is easy. It's easy to say this institution and that institution is racist. And so that's where there a lot of the disagreement is because people can say that was heinous. We may not know the reason for George Floyd's death, But he immediately gets lumped in to all other cases, including Trayvon Martin, which was not a police brutality issue. Remember, he was killed by a white Hispanic all of a sudden. You know, it's just I'm not I'm not making light of that. I think every life lost is tragic. I'm making light of the the lunacy of how things are cast and the narrative that we're we're receiving. So I think that's aiding in this whole division of people going. From one side to the other, I'm more concerned as a Christian. How do we look at these issues from a biblical worldview? And if you look at it from a biblical worldview, you cannot accept the premise that we're being fed.
0: So, one of the things that I was sort of interested in is is where the, like there are problems that nobody's discussing in sort of the, the the Malay. Like so, one of the one of the interesting investigations that was done by the federal government a few years back. Um, was that some cases that were thought to be specifically racist were, were in fact, they were an abusive police authority, but the reason for it was actually that the police was trying to raise revenue um, by by pulling pulling people over, and it was often black people more than white people based on where they were, but the whole purpose was basically to raise enormous amounts of cash, and they were using people as ATMs. Uh, I know Republican Senator Tim Scott has come forward and said, look, I've gotten pulled over way more times uh, than my other friends. And then, but the, so the thing is, that you can have a situation where police authorities being abused, where there's a real problem here. It's just not the, pro, the specific problem people are talking about. So when you look at issues like this, what, what problems do you think that we should be addressing? What sort of reforms do you think are necessary? Uh, what sort of responses do you think that we can put forward that say, hey, um, this is what the situation is revealing to us. And here's what we can do, uh, especially where a lot of common ground, I think, would exist.
1: Wow, there, there's a lot of substance there. I, I think you're referring to Ferguson in one yeah. of those cases. And I went to Ferguson after all that happened. Um, that was the case where you have so little tax base. So what does the police department do when they don't have the tax base? raise? I'm not saying it's right, but there was this, this thing. And then, of course, it's the perpetuating of the already impoverished situation where people who were predominantly black in Ferguson couldn't pay the tickets. So the, the issue for me is corruption, period. Right. There are people in authority who abuse their authority all the time. When a cop abuses his or her authority, and I support our men in blue who protect and serve, but when they abuse their authority, they need to be held to account, 100%. But what about the politicians who abuse their power? What about the politicians who for decades have created the environments that are more impoverished, that, that do have higher crime rates, that do have higher abortion rates, that do have higher dropout rates, that have less economic opportunity? What about the politicians being held to account for their corruption and their abuse of power. But we don't hear about that. When you talk about so many of these, these neighborhoods that are the ones crying out um, about the, the oppression, but they're, they're singling out the police force, the reason so many of these, these communities are in that, in that state is because of fatherlessness. And there are social policies, particularly pushed by a particular, actually, the Democrat Party, Overwhelmingly, but the Democrat Party and the Republican Party have for decades enabled the, the, the welfare state, the, the safety nets, whatever, whatever euphemism you want to use for it. And they've created these environments of fatherlessness. Fatherless communities are far more vulnerable to to any any predator, whether it's the abortion industry or, or, or drugs. But I don't hear that being talked about. It's not just the corruption of a of of some police I'm not saying the entire police force, of course not. Um, And that's where the whole abusive systemic comes in because I've experienced racism throughout my whole life, but I refuse to attribute the act of a single individual to an entire group. I won't do it.
0: So a lot of people are writing right now about racism in the United States and different possible responses to it. And so I'm really interested to hear from you as somebody who has experienced it. What 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 are your proposed solutions? How do you think we should deal with it? Is it especially an individual family level thing? Where can the church do better, for example? Because we know that, well, there's a difference between racism and prejudice, which I don't think is often looked at enough. Like racism is this belief that you're superior to people of other races. And there's prejudice, which comes from your own biases in your own community. And uh, but isn't rooted in this idea that you're superior so of course that's a that's a separate thing and a complicated thing but what would your solution to to some of this be
1: well where do you begin first of all <laughs> let's start with the, the construct of race it was a made up construct in the, in the mid 1700s this is not something that even the bible doesn't doesn't differentiate us by race there was a distinction made in the bible it was between jews and gentiles and then right. to do you know race that was the only distinction that god made he didn't create these different races out of act 17 from one blood were all created. So to, to approach these issues, we have to first stop looking through the broken print prism of race. That first and foremost is, is the problem because then it, when ends, ends up happening is that racism transcends all other issues. And that's why it's okay. For instance, the black lives matter movement with the movement for black lives, which is the heavily funded, uh, part of the Black Lives Matter movement, where it's all about black power. The whole thing is about establishing black power. The three founders of the Black Lives Matter movement um, said that we did this to spread black power across the country. Well, that's not a biblical worldview. So the church, and I've been calling for this for years, the church needs to be the one leading on this and then lead on the conversation of what race is in the first place, what race actually is. And that, that whole construct has never been anything but destructive it's never classifying us into different groups by race has never been a beneficial, uh, and has never had a beneficial outcome. So we need to kind of start the conversation there. And then as, as Christians, the church has to understand, first of all, salvation does not come without forgiveness. It does not come without reconciliation. We're reconciled to God. Yet the premise of the whole movement that's driving this whole thing is, is looking at an individual based on the color of their skin and saying, this is all part of the critical race theory, too. Uh, two groups. We have the oppressed and the oppressors. If you're black, like me, or brown, you're always in the oppressed group. And if you're the white person, you're the oppressor. You're not going to have the constructive conversations. You're not going to have the transformation that's needed when your, your premise, your starting point is that. So when we talk about how do we, how do we address the issue of racism, we need to talk about race itself. Right. Of course we denounce racism. We denounce the sin of racism. <laughs> but we cannot fall into this trap that everything is racist. Apparently now it's racist to say all lives matter. I don't know if you followed the, the story of the Sacramento Kings sports commentator who was fired because he was asked on Twitter what's your take on uh, on the Black Lives Matter movement and this white individual said all lives matter exclamation point every single one <laughs> and he was fired. Because it was considered racist. So, man, if we can't even have a conversation about what actually racism is, we're going to keep going back to the same starting point. This is what I feel. Since Ferguson, we're still having the same conversations. We're still ending up at the same starting point. Why is that? Because the church is not leading. A secular worldview and a secular movement that has no forgiveness, no reconciliation at its heart is leading it. And that's why this thing will continually be cyclical until we embrace a biblical worldview about race, about racism, about how we regard one another. We're to, to love one another. It doesn't have a, there's no asterisk there that says, oh, if you're the same height or if you're the same socioeconomic status or if you're the same skin color. That's why we keep having these repeated sort of conversations and we can't break out of them.
0: So here's one one question I really wanted to ask you because one of the things that I really understand, history is my background, that's what I went to university for, I'm very interested in my own family history, which as my last name indicates is, is Dutch initially. Um, my dad was born in the Netherlands, my mom was born in Canada, I was born in the United States, so everybody's from somewhere different. Um, but knowing how much my Dutch heritage informs the way I think, uh, you know, the lens through which I look at a lot of different things. I always I interviewed a George Walker. He was the first African-American to win the Pulitzer Prize in music a couple of years ago, just before he passed away. He was 95 years old. And he told me about hearing uh, stories from his grandmother who had actually been a slave on a southern plantation. And I remember asking him, like, what did she tell you? And he said, uh, she said they did everything but eat us. And I was talking to him, right? There was one degree removed between between what she'd experienced and, and him telling me this story. And if I look at at some of the anger, and if I look at some of the context for what's going on, if I was a young man today, and my 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 dad had been persecuted under Jim Crow, my grandfather, my great grand uh, grandfather had actually been a victim. Of the of the slave regime, I can imagine that history giving me a very different view of the United States than the one I now hold. So, what is the way forward to to honestly address the fact that yes, it's been well, what was the Voting Rights Act, 1965, Civil Rights Act, 1964? Yes, it's been been it's been a, over half a century, um, but there was, there was 350 years of oppression. So, how do you have an honest conversation about the history, a recognition that people are in formed by their family history and the experiences of their family members especially many who would still be alive while not falling into the trap that you referred to how do you do both of those things
1: well i use examples from history uh, look at frederick douglas frederick Douglass was actually a slave he was one who actually experienced the kind of oppression that we're talking about you know 400 years removed uh, i'm not saying that hasn't had an impact it obviously has had an impact on america but here you have frederick douglas you know former slave and abolitionist who spoke about those who fought hardest for his freedom. He praised the white man. He praised his white brothers and sisters who fought for him and actually died for him. So if someone who was a slave can thank those of a different complexion of skin and consider them brothers, how can't we in 2020 have a, a, a similar uh, worldview, a similar take on this thing. This whole thing of this generational sort of, of of anger and resentment and trauma is perpetuated because we don't forgive. And we know in our individual lives, when you don't forgive somebody, I mean, that can carry on, that bitterness grows and grows. Right. But what we're doing is, I mean, if MLK and civil rights leaders could talk about the beloved community, could walk hand in hand with their white brothers and sisters, uh, who, by the way, Slavery, slavery would not have been abolished without white people who believed that we were all created equal. The civil rights movement could not have happened if there weren't white people who walked hand in hand with people of my complexion and, and even darker, if they didn't believe that we were all created equal. But yet today we hear a lot of this, this anger and this bitterness and this, this sort of re, recreated narrative that white people have never been our advocates and it 's a false narrative, so of course this, this this bitterness and this anger and this revision of history is going to fuel even more confusion and more chaos and we 're seeing this play out we 're seeing this when, when, when we 're told that police, for instance, the police are nothing but the kKK dressed up in, in uniform well. Yes, there were racists who, who joined police forces. There are racists that joined banking institutions. There are racists that joined, you know, university systems. I mean, if, if that's kind of the, the gauge, we're, we're in trouble because people who are sinful, which is all of us, are in every facet of, of life. But uh, I don't think it's helpful to constantly use the past to justify the present. Can I give you one Perfect example, here in where I live in Northern Virginia, the NAACP chapter president, Michelle Thomas, made this remark in response, she was asked the question, do you denounce the the, the riots? What's your take on, on these riots that are happening along with the the protests. And she said, if you think these riots and the looting and the violence is just in response to the single death of George Floyd, you're missing out on 400 years of slavery and oppression. You're missing out on 400 years of white feet on our black necks. Really? So here you have someone who's justifying all of this violence. At what point does this ever stop? And if there's never, as I said, if there's never forgiveness, we're going to have the same conversation five years from now. These are the same exact conversations we had during Ferguson. And we've had this Black Lives Matter movement uh, gain so, such prominence. Are we in a better place today?
0: Did you watch the documentary on Ferguson, um, Whose Streets, that covered the protests just following that?
1: Was that the the beat? I did watch a documentary on on Ferguson. I'm not sure. I can't remember. I can't recall the name of
0: it. Because one of the things um, that I've, con- I've so I, I kind of try to stay in my in my field when I'm writing on issues like this, and one of the things that I wanted to note was the difference between the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter, which it's presented as sort of this this natural progression from civil rights leaders to to Black Lives Matter. But regardless of MLK's per- personal life, and regardless of what you think of, of the of the theology of some of the major civil rights uh, um, leaders. What is true is that the civil rights movement was a movement founded by pastors, operated out of the churches that used Christianity to appeal to America's collective conscience and and, and basically hold America to account for the way they were failing their own Christian principles. Which is why MLK's speeches were packed with, you know, spiritual songs, hymns, quotations from the Bible. He did that because. Um, he wanted to present, he wanted to appeal to a value system that both a racist segregationist and an angry sharecropper could have in common. And that was Christianity. He could accuse a segregationist of of being inconsistent with the values he himself claimed to hold, and and it worked. Um, And now we have Black Lives Matter, which I want to ask you your take on, because they don't have a a Christian worldview, and in fact they have an anti-Christian worldview and I'll emphasize here again for those who are going to take me out of context: Black Lives Matter, the organization specifically, not the sentiment, which is 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 obviously held by any decent person. Um, and and so this distinction between MLK, like the violence aside, between MLK and Black Lives Matter is very stark. You've written a lot on this, um, and you've been you've been very vocal in pointing this out. Tell us a bit about Black Lives Matter and what and why you oppose it, because I'm getting a, l- a lot of flack. A lot of people are getting a lot of flack just for saying, look, um, I'm not going to get on this bandwagon because of who's driving the vehicle. Uh, we're all supportive of peaceful protest. We're all supportive of injustices being in- addressed by justice. But the group that's, that's, that's leading this right now has a lot of views that I, I, I think will make everything worse, are genuinely harmful, and are genuinely anti-Christian.
1: Right. I, I hear all the time, you know, it's a, it's a concept. I believe in the concept. Well, something no longer remains a concept, which is an abstract idea or a notion, when it's acted upon. It becomes a cause. It becomes a movement. When you're walking down the street, like here in our, our local town, we had a Black Lives Matter uh, march, and, and I was there just to talk to people. And so they're, they're marching down the street. Some of it, they were saying, I guess I can say this without, they're saying, F the police. So you've got Christians walking in this march. Are they in, in, in agreement with the, the whole F the police? Are they in agreement with abolishing all prisons? abolishing all police forces that's part of the movement for black lives people need to understand go to m4bl.org the and understand when you're marching and you're hearing these chants and you're hearing you know you could watch a host of videos of these black lives matter movement leaders and what they're saying this is a revolution you know you're revolutionary this is not about voting anymore this is a revolution well you may not believe this is You may not believe that you're in in a movement, but the people who are leading it, they believe it. And so the things that they're espousing are deeply disturbing. They're deeply political. I mean, as a Christian, are you in agreement with the spread of black power? Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, let us not be dissatisfied until that day when no one will shout white power, no one will shout black power, but we will all shout God's power and human power. See, to me, it's no different today than it was during the 60s because there were two radically different worldviews that were present there. You had MLK who, who supported nonviolence and he denounced the black power movement. Then you had Malcolm X who was all about black power. He was, pro, you know, he was pro-segregation, he was anti-integration, he was pro-violence. I mean, no denying. And he spread so much of the, the, the racism from the nation of Islam. There were two radically different worldviews. They had the same goal of racial justice but radically different approaches. And it does matter. Martin Luther King Jr. was not and would not promote Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. He promoted nonviolence. He promoted a gospel-centered approach. And that's why for me, it's no different today. We have the same cry for justice, 100%. But we cannot align ourselves with a movement. I mean, which part are they aligning themselves with? Because if you want to fight injustice, are you embracing their action plan? Because their action plan is not going to work. You know, Minneapolis right now, the Minneapolis City Council wants to completely disband the police. Really, how well is that going to work? I, who is that going to help? It's going to harm the very communities that need an uplift. And pulling out the security and the protection of the police is not going to be an uplift. So, peop- for me it's I applaud those who sense injustice and want to do something. I I am so grateful that they're not being apathetic. But sometimes acting out of ignorance is just as dangerous as being apathetic. It, there's no excuse for an individual not to know that this is a movement. It's a very well-funded movement. I mean, you're talking the Movement for Black Lives, the Ford Foundation, the world's largest population control organization that funds to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars all, all these pro-abortion groups, including Planned Parenthood, The Ford Foundation committed to raising $100 million, this is back in 2016, for the movement for Black Lives, for the Black Lives Matter movement. This is political. This is not just some sort of abstract concept out there. There are real consequences to embracing a movement, which we have seen in burning cities from coast to coast. How do we fight this injustice by embracing a movement that will just cause more injustice that is so race based and, and skin color centered. That is not going to bring us healing. That's not going to bring justice. And that is not going to bring about the change that Christians should want to see.
0: So my objection to the the black lives matter organization is I just, when I was doing the research initially, this is back in 2016 is, is people asked me what I thought about the organization. So I did what most people would do when they want to find out about an organization. I went to their website I went to Guiding Principles, and it talked about the promotion of the pretty much the entire LGBT agenda, including all the most recent insanity on, on gender identity. They want to defund the cops and break the binary. Um, and, and, of course, it's all framed in such a way that it would be hard for even a Christian to disagree with because they'd say, well, violence is being perpetrated against... X And people would be like, well, I'm against violence. Of course I am. But they mean words at this point. Right. You can't act. We're seeing we're seeing a total, a total purge at the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer um, against liberals who still believe in free speech because a lot of speech now is classified as violence. Right. So riots are op-eds and op-eds are riots and it's impossible to tell the difference anymore. But. When you looked into the leadership of Black Lives Matter, that's not something I've looked into as much. So I wanted to get your take on that. For me, I found three or four par- things in their guiding principles that said no Christian can be can follow these leaders because of the direction these leaders are taking us in, which is further away from uh, from from a morally organized society. What is their what is their leadership like? What's a bit of the background? How did this group emerge? Because a lot of people that criti- have cr- critiqued some of my writing on this are very much under the impression that it's a spontaneous reaction to an injustice. Um, which if, if it was, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but wh- who who are the leaders of this group? What are they all about?
1: Well, the, the three female leaders of the black lives matter movement. Um, two of them are self described or uh, lesbians. Um, one of them, interestingly, uh, I, I believe it's Alicia Garza has a white Jewish father <laughs> and a black mother. But of course, this is what happens when something is race-based. You only identify with a particular color. So she only identifies with being black. That's the whole black power. So their whole background, um, well-educated in the sociology, some of their, their majors, their, their whole thing is that um, the Trayvon Martin, was that, that whole incident is what spurred them on to say, and I believe it was Alicia Garza's um, post where she, at the end of it, she said black lives matter. And that's kind of how the hashtag was born. Right. These are three women who don't espouse any kind of adherence to, to Christianity. Um, in fact, there's, there's, there's a lot of spiritualism in there, but not Christianity. So from the get go, you've got three individuals who don't embrace a Christian worldview whatsoever. And as they explain in the about us on the blacklivesmatter.com website, they saw this as a catalyst for spreading black power around the country well black power didn't work in the '60s to bring people together it's not going to work in 2020 to bring people together and so uh, the, the background is you, you've got three you've got three incredibly intelligent women passionate women who understand that it's not about a singular issue. It wasn't just about Trayvon because you can see in the expanse of all of these issues, they realize we have a vehicle to carry all of our idea, uh, our entire ideology, all in, in, in one place. And that's the Black Lives Matter movement. It's why they're elevating you know, the whole thing with, with LGBTQ, all of that, along with everything else. It's why they, they talk about uh, black economic power. It's why they talk about reparations. Now now this is moving into the movement for black lives, which they are part of that whole umbrella of these are black, these are all, you know, decentralized groups, except it's centralized under the, the singular policy platform of movement for black lives. And that's why they can call for reparations, but they're calling for reparations, for instance, not just for people of my complexion, but people who are undocumented immigrants, as they put them, that they deserve reparations. What? They were not enslaved. So to understand To understand the movement, you have to understand the worldview of those who are leading this movement. And when you have a worldview that is so broken, that is so enmeshed in a deeply political leftist black, it's just black nationalism regurgitated, Jonathan. It really is. That's all it is. Um, I think if you were to look at these things and you were to be honest with yourself as as a Christian, you would say, wait a minute. The foundation isn't right. But yet, you're not hearing that from so many churches. So many churches who are genuflecting, which the only person you know, we should be battling down to is, is God, but they're all genuflecting to a movement that they seem to know nothing about. And that's, that's deeply disturbing, and we're seeing it, it leads to disastrous consequences. Disbanding the police which is one of the many goals. That is a disastrous consequence. Martin Luther King Jr. when he's asked about rioting, he said he understood where that cry was coming from. He understood, but in the end he said, it is immoral. Because in the end, who does it hurt the most? The very black individuals who are crying out for justice. so
0: Well that always drives me nuts is, is the most heartbreaking videos coming out of the protests were these. These African American business owners and homeowners that were were just were crying as as what they built got destroyed. There was one guy, a, a black guy like my age, who said, "I did everything right. I broke I, I broke the abusive cycle. I got married. I got a job. I work on my work truck every night. I got a couple of kids. I did everything right, and they burned my house down." Um, and then there was all those the videos of protesters trying to stop. The interlopers from coming in and chucking bricks, those those videos were also really, really hard to watch. I always thought these Antifa people wanted to make make a real statement. Why didn't they burn their own house down, right? Like riot in the suburbs then or something like that. Because if you need to make a statement, then I think that in order to illustrate your commitment, you should be destroying stuff in your own neighborhood rather than trucking, you know, across state lines to go somewhere else um, because apparently the pandemic is over and, and go destroy that stuff. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to get your take on is what like a bunch of these movements just in recent years. So you've got the, the, the Me Too movement, which initially I was quite approving of because it just seemed like a lot of scumbags were getting cleaned out. And who doesn't like that? Um, and then same thing with, with the Black Lives Matter movement and a number of other ones is that because they, they are not Christian... It's, it's interesting, they have a mechanism for punishing injustice, and in some ways, in regard to the Me Too movement, we chucked out all our standards during the sexual revolution, and so now we're re-implementing them, but without any mechanism for forgiveness or grace or redemption. And the same thing seems to be true with the Black Lives Matter, except that we're watching like these new religious rituals get formed almost on the fly. Like these videos of people kneeling to each other, that one video of them sort of to chanting out, I promise, sounded almost identical to how my church recites the Apostles' Creed. Like, I believe, I believe, I believe. Very, very sort of strange to watch. And and we know that human beings need religion, and so something else always comes rushing in. But what do you think of first the, the, the inability to have a place for redemption and forgiveness, and the fact that this new religion does seem maybe, maybe I missed it. Maybe this has been around for a long time, but it seems to me like a new religion is kind of being created before our eyes over the last couple of weeks.
1: Well, yeah, it's fear. I mean, if you're white, you don't want to be considered a racist. So I'm, I'm going to kneel. I'm going to chant whatever they say, no matter how crazy it is, you know, like the, the black revolutionaries in New York city, the other day, part of the black lives matter movement, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people around them and, and everyone's just sheepishly repeating these things you know i'm a revolution this it's not about voting voting won't change anything really you don't believe that voting changes anything but granted our political system messed up i acknowledge that but to say that voting isn't the way that revolution what is revolution then it's violence and so many people just giving into this online all the you know the black screens from so this is what gets me this people tend to forget that lots of things can be religious. It is a religious movement. It's just not the religion of Christ. It's not scriptural, it's not Christian. Um, but people are so, they, they give in to this religion. They have all their black screens, you know, pandering to all this, you know, the Christian pastors leading evangelical, evangelicals who went black on Blackout Tuesday, interesting because the same ones who never talk about the issue of abortion and the killing of the unborn and the killing of infants and infanticide has been around long before race-based slavery long before I just want to point that out. But it is this, this giving in to this religion, this cult of, I mean, Uber just announced that they're going to deliver food free from black owned restaurants. So that's now corporately approved racism. I mean, it, Everyone wants to be seen as an advocate and they're rushing in to be like, oh, I don't want to be on the side that doesn't believe that black lives matter. I don't want to be on the side that doesn't believe that black lives matter. Did I say that right? Um, And in that rush, they ignore all the evidence. They ignore the reality. And my question is, what is the reality that's now going to be formed because we are rushing in because there's been this vacuum of real leadership? Can I tell you, there was an event, Um, back in 2000 called The Call DC. It was led by evangelicals out of the International House of Prayer, Lou Engel, uh, who I have deep respect for. Back in 2000, I remember a huge part of it, it was just a prayer and fasting event, 450,000 plus people converged on the mall in DC to repent as a nation for, for a number of different sins, including abortion, including racism, all that and I was just, it was such a powerful event. I mean, people were just wrecked all day long to see the, the humility, the humble way that people were approaching this, the, the confessions of men who forced their girlfriends to have abortions, women who've had abortions, and, and talk about their healing and, and racism and racism against uh, the wrongs done against Native Americans, the wrongs done against black individuals. And there was this feet washing moment which is always awkward for me to, to watch because that's not part of our culture, obviously, but it was really a powerful event. And I thought, if only the church had modeled what was being done on that day, 20 years later, we wouldn't be having the embrace of the what I am now looking more as a, a religious type of cult uh, in a way, we, we wouldn't be in this place if the church had been leading all this time. And because of that church's failure, instead of, instead of leading, and because of the vacuum that had been created, the church is just like being sucked right in, mm-hmm. sucked right into it, and just going along without challenging anything. I mean, we're called, we're called in Scripture to test the spirits, to test them, to see that they align with the Word of God. We're not even doing the testing part. And, and that, for me, is heartbreaking, because we, we know the truth that sets people free. We know that when we, as a Christian, we become one with Christ. There's no longer the black body of Christ, the the white body of Christ, the Hispanic body of Christ, the Asian body of Christ. It's one body of Christ. So how are we embracing a movement that is determined to classify us by the hue of our skin?
0: Final question. What did we miss? What do you want listeners and viewers to know about all this? There are a lot of people who are very confused. They just don't know what to think. If they have thoughts, they don't want to say it because again, as, as you said, I think that kind of encapsulates it perfectly. Nobody wants to be on the side that doesn't believe black lives matter. I think that's true for everybody. And that's a very natural and good instinct. Um, so a lot of people want to say something because right now everybody's saying, you know, you can't stay silent and you have to make a statement and then here are the specific parameters for how you get to make a statement. So if you say, well, I'm against I'm against what happened, um, you have to add a whole bunch of things where it's not good enough. And so what would you say to people who, who, who are struggling to know what to think are struggling to know what to say uh, and just need some guidance?
1: I think the fact that people are so fearful of stating their opinion, particularly a biblically based opinion, should be indicative of what's so wrong with all of this. The fact that there is so much fear. It's not like you're you no know, you talk about there's no one that, that's against the whole black. life. I mean, obviously, there are there are the, the smallest fringe of people who are determined to be as
0: racist as they want to be. Um, And by the way, racism, we we saw that with the alt-right in 2016. There's some real racists out there. And I loved your articles exposing them. I mean, and and they, they,
1: they should be denounced. That worldview should be denounced. Um, But let's also remember that racism isn't just a a white thing. It can be a black thing too. And that's why we see in the nation of Islam and Farrakhan and the, the racism that he regularly spews the anti semitism he regularly spews. So for people who just, I want to encourage people, first of all, with everything, go to the word. I mean, in Psalm 89, 14 talks about righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. They're the foundation. You can't have justice without righteousness. And I love some of my friends who talk about civil righteousness. It has to be a morally right system. And, and in that verse also then goes to say that unfailing love and truth proceed his throne. So if you don't have unfailing love and truth, You cannot possibly have justice. They are inextricably tied together. And so I just want to encourage people, encourage your pastors to have conversations, but have a conversation that's rooted in the word. Go to the word, go to the website. In fact, if you're in church, bring up the websites, go through some of the precepts and, you know, the the policy positions, what we believe on, on moving for black lives or blacklivesmatter.com. Look at these things. I don't think it's helpful for people to fall into the whole white guilt and because white guilt is not going to change the situation in the neighborhoods that I've worked in, in much of my adult life. It's not going to change the trajectory of their life because you're weeping and saying, I'm sorry for, that's not going to change anything. But what does begin to change things is that we look at the actual instances of injustice, whether they're race, race race-based or not. And we say, the church can't be silent about these things. Church can't be silent about instances of racism. It can't be silent about abortion. It can't be silent about sexism. It can't be silent about human trafficking. The church cannot be silent. So I encourage people, let's have these conversations, but let's not be afraid to say, wait a minute, let's get some clarified context. We're, we're, we're called the light of the world, right? Can we not illuminate what the situation is because there's, there's no way for us to act responsibly if we actually don't know what the situation is. We cannot have an action plan as a church if we don't know what we're actually fighting. And so I want to encourage people, do your homework, read some of the articles written by Jonathan, Read the articles written you know, the Radiance Foundation to understand the context and engage in a conversation that's going to lead to wholeness, healing, forgiveness, and then transformation. Oh, one other thing. Here's some of the practical tools. Let me just talk about um, the police. I think one of the best mm-hmm. things we did in our church is we we met with our local police force. We had a luncheon. Because we need to get to know them. They need to get to know us. And it was two and a half hours of us talking about what their take on things were, what their needs were. And they listened to us talk about what we felt um, the issues were in the community. And there was communication. And there was this bond because a relationship was formed. Hmm. And then we ask, how can we serve you? And it's amazing what happens. See, when you love somebody, you you want to serve them. I, I, I don't want to discourage anybody from, from stepping out. I just want to make sure that when, when you step out, that you are armed with, in the spiritual sense, of course, not physically armed, but you are armed with the information. You are armed with the knowledge so that you can you can speak responsibly um, and effectively into these situations.
0: Well, Ryan, thanks a million for coming on and having this difficult conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jonathan.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Ryan Bomberger. You can go and check out his work at theradiancefoundation.org. If you want to check out our commentary on these unfolding issues, you can head over to lifesitenews.com. I have several columns on the subject up over there. If you want to check out podcasts, uh, previous podcasts that I've done, you can click the podcast tab on lifesitenews.com if you enjoyed this show and you want to Stay in touch, and you want to keep track of the new shows that are coming out, you can subscribe, like the video, and recommend it to others. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.